Father God, we, uh, we come before you this morning and we just pray, Lord, that you would be here among us. Father, we need you every day. We need you every moment, but I can't think of a moment where we need you now, more, more than now. Father, I pray that uh, your peace would be felt, that your, your presence would be experienced. And, uh, and God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart uh, will be honoring and glorifying to you, O oh Lord, uh, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, we thank you that the, the gospel is not just some theoretical concept, but it's a real story of good news for broken people like us. And we thank you that the gospel allows us to have hope so that it's not that we don't grieve. We, we grieve, Father. We grieve deeply. But we don't grieve like those who don't have hope because we have you and we have the gospel. And so, Father, I just pray that you would be with me now as we step into this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, now, uh, in light of the last few days in the life of our church, uh, this morning we're going to do things uh, a bit differently. Originally, the plan uh, was to continue our series through Colossians. We were going to be in uh, week 11 of our 12-week series, uh, but God, in his providence and in his sovereignty, had a different plan for us. And so today, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, be looking at and uh, addressing and unpacking the subject and topic of suffering. We're going to be addressing suffering this morning. Now, the reason why we are doing this is because the past few months at High, at High Point have been distinctly marked and characterized by suffering. Um, I want to share with you here quickly just some of the families uh, that have experienced loss and suffering in the past few months here at High Point. This list isn't extensive. It's the names that we know of, and so there's many of you probably who've suffered that we don't know of, but here are some of the families that have suffered just in this past year, like since 2021 started. The Westmoreland family, the Tyler family, the Bird family, the Rains family, the Franco family, the Hilliard family, the Pritchard family, the Murphy family, the Tashi family, the Daniel family, the Peterson family, the Stansberry family, the Seguda Johnson family, the Duncan family, and the Leggett family. That's just since 2021 started. So in light of the last few months in general and the last few days in particular, uh, this morning, we are going to be addressing and unpacking the subject of suffering. And to do that, um, the passage that I'm going to be looking at comes from John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 17 through 53. And in John chapter 11, what we have is the story of 
the passing away of Lazarus and the reaction that his sisters had and that Jesus had to the passing away of their loved one. So John chapter 11, 17 through 53, and what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We are going to look at the reality of suffering, and then we're going to look at the responses to suffering, and then we're going to conclude this morning by looking at the removal of suffering. We're going to begin today by looking at the reality of suffering. Look what it says in John 11, 17 through 19. John writes, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So the first truth, the the first principle uh, that I want for us to take away from this passage is the reality of suffering. And what we see here in this passage is we see three people, three distinct human beings, experiencing the full weight and reality of suffering. And the reason why they are suffering is because they have each lost a loved one. Uh, The two sisters, Mary and Martha, have lost their brother, and Jesus has lost one of his best friends. And what we see here in this passage is we see them suffering. They are experiencing the full weight and reality of suffering. They are experiencing deep sorrow and sadness because they have lost someone whom they loved. And what we learn here when we look at this passage the, 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 the truth that jumps out at me when we look at this passage is that like this family, every single person in this room is going to experience the reality of suffering. We maybe already have experienced it in our past. We might be experiencing it right now in the present, or we will experience it in the future. Every single person in this room, like this family, will experience the reality of suffering. And the question is why? Why is suffering a part of the human experience? Well, the answer according to scripture is Genesis chapter three. In Genesis chapter three, what we discover is Satan and humans destroying what God originally created. In Genesis one and two, God doesn't just create Adam and Eve for fellowship with him, but he creates them for everlasting life, for eternal life. It was never part of the plan for people to die, which is why death doesn't make sense to us, which is why death feels wrong to us, because it is. And in Genesis chapter 3, from from that moment on, we, we, we tend to look at Genesis 3 as the place where sin entered the world. But what we discover is that it wasn't just sin that entered the world. It was suffering that entered the world. And and from that moment on, every human being that's ever walked the earth has experienced suffering because of Genesis chapter three, which then leads me to the definition of what suffering is. I think in order for us to respond to this season in a biblical way, we have to have a definition for what 
suffering actually is. And here is the definition for suffering. It'll be on the screen behind me or underneath me if you're watching online. Suffering is any time we experience the negative effects or ramifications of the fall at any level or to any degree. We'll say that again. Suffering is any time we experience the negative effects or ramifications of the fall at any level or to any degree. So, so let me unpack for you what this means. I need you to understand what this means. If that's truly the definition of suffering, then what that means is, is that every person in here is suffering to one degree or another, right? It's easy, like if you're not going through a season of suffering to think, oh, this has nothing to do with me. But if the definition of suffering is any time we experience the negative effects and ramifications of the fall at any level or to any degree, then what that means is every single one of us is suffering to one degree or another right now. So suffering, here's the whole, this is the scale of suffering. You ready? Suffering can be as small as a sore throat and as big as throat cancer. Suffering can be the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. That, that's literally the scale. Every single one of us is suffering to one degree or another. So if anyone here is aging, you're getting older, that's effects of suffering. If any of you have gotten sick, that's the effects of suffering. If any of you have ever been through a natural disaster, that, that's the effects of suffering. We see suffering at every level and to different degrees. But if that's truly the definition, then every single one of us is suffering to some degree or another. But because of the names of families I just listed, there are certain people here today who are experiencing the full extent and the full weight of suffering. Now, what I would say is that in order for us to truly navigate a season like this, the way God calls us to navigate it, we have to be honest about the fact that suffering is a reality that we're all going to experience. We, we have to embrace a theology of suffering. See, because I would argue that I can't think of any culture ever uh, that has a harder time with the reality and the theology of suffering than the culture that we live in. Because we live in a culture that lies to us and tells us that life is all about happiness and fulfillment. And so when you assume that, then suffering doesn't fit in that worldview. So I can't think of a culture that's more ill-equipped to navigate suffering than the American church. But what we see here is that as believers, we have to have a theology of suffering. We, we have to accept that suffering because of Genesis 3 is a part of the human experience. Here's what happens, church. Here's what happens, church, when we don't have a theology of suffering, when we pretend like Genesis 3 never happened. We, we tend to respond to suffering in two ways that are not biblical. The first way that Christians can respond to suffering, which is not biblical, is to minimize it. And then the second way is to moralize it. Let me look at the first way. The first way you respond to suffering, if you don't have a theology of suffering, is you minimize it. So here's what happens. You are either going through suffering yourself, right, or someone who you love is going through suffering, and you 
minimize it. You, you, you literally think, well, you say things like, hey, God has a plan, brother. Hey, you know God is sovereign, right? You're going to see him again. Can I get an amen? We say these things that might be theologically true, but emotionally insensitive. Because we look at the person and we minimize suffering. We act like since, since we don't have a theology for suffering, we don't know what to do with it. So we're uncomfortable with it. And so we minimize it and we make the person who is suffering and mourning feel less than or like they're doing something wrong. Because we're Christians. We no suffering here. So the first response when you don't have a biblical view of suffering, the first response is to minimize it. The second response, which is equally as bad, is to moralize it. And we end up responding the way Job's friends do in the book of Job. And we come around the person who's suffering and we tell them, well, maybe you did something. Maybe God's trying to teach you something. Are you sure that you confess everything? Are you sure that you're right with God? You see, when we don't have a theology of suffering, we either end up minimizing it and acting like robots, or moralizing it and acting like Pharisees. But what we see in Scripture is that we are not called to minimize or to moralize. We are called to mourn. The Bible gives us permission to mourn. Here's what I need you to see, guys. When we look at Scripture, we see that again and again, we see individuals who mourn openly for the loss of their loved ones, who, who, who mourn honestly when they are suffering. Well, one of the examples of this is, is Abraham. In, in, in the book of Genesis, Abraham loses his wife, Sarah, and it says that he mourned and he wept. And then in the Hebrew there, it's strong language. It means that he wept loudly. He cried out. He tore his clothes off, his robe off in, in anguish and in despair. But we also see it with Job. In the book of Job, Job is going through suffering. Job is going through trials. And, and Job literally, he, he cries out to God. He's angry. He's confused. He, he doesn't know what, what's going on. But he is very emotionally honest with God. And what I love about Job is that in chapter 1, uh, verse 22, it says, and all these things, Job never sinned. So he was honest and he was open and he was angry and he was confused and he was doubting and he was numb. And it says that he never sinned. Not once. He didn't minimize. He didn't moralize. He mourned and he never sinned. We see it also in the life of David. In the life of King David, he, he, you see him mourning when he loses his unborn child. We, we see him mourning when he loses his adult child. Openly crying and mourning Being very emotionally honest with God himself and with others. That's the example that we see when we look at Scripture. But I would argue that the greatest example of this in Scripture is Jesus himself. Because in this passage, we see Jesus show two very strong emotions. The first emotion that he shows is that he weeps. It says that he sees that his friend is dead. The person whom he loved is gone and that he weeps. But one of the things that translations overlook, which really bothers me in the Bible, is that one of the things it says is that when he finally gets in front of the grave, he is troubled. And the word there, troubled, it means that he was angered. 
The, the word picture there in Greek is of a horse uh, snorting out of frustration. Jesus is looking at death and he is furious. He is looking at death and he is angry. He, he is looking at death and he hates it. Jesus is showing emotion. Jesus is openly mourning. He hates death. He hates sin. He hates suffering. He hates destruction, the destruction and the decay of his father's creation. He hates it. And he doesn't hold back his tears or his anger. Church, the first thing we need to take away from this passage is the reality of suffering. Regardless of how you are feeling in this season, regardless uh, to which degree or level you are suffering in this season, I need you to know that you can go to God with your anger, with your frustration, with your doubt, with your confusion, with your numbness. You can go to God because no matter how much you hate suffering in death, God hates it more. He hates sin. He hates suffering. He hates decay. He hates destruction. And what the Bible teaches is that sin is bad and death is wrong. And to not be honest about that would not be biblically accurate. So the first thing we see here in this passage is we see the reality of suffering. The, the second thing that we see here in this passage is we see the responses to suffering, the responses to suffering. This is a longer part of the passage. I'm going to read from verse 20 through verse 38. Here's what it says. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she has said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, and Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. The second truth, the second principle that we take away from this passage is we see the 
responses to suffering. You see, in this passage, there are two very different responses to suffering. Two drastically different responses. The first response comes from the older sister, Martha. And then the second response comes from the younger sister, Mary. And I would argue that when you look at their response here in this passage, we shouldn't be surprised by how they respond because we actually see that there are very different people when you look at the rest of the gospel narrative. Let me, let me give you a little bit of background on each sister just to show you why their responses in this context makes total sense. We see their personalities and their demeanors come out even in this story. The first sister, the older sister, uh, Martha, is the one who, when Jesus was over at their house, right, a few chapters earlier, she's she's there and she's a a busybody. She's she's cooking and she's cleaning and she's preparing and she's serving. And and she's, she's doing all this work. And her sister, Mary, instead of helping, is seated at the feet of Jesus. Martha gets so frustrated that she snaps at Jesus and says, do you not see what's going on here? I'm doing all the work and my sister is sitting here meditating and pondering. She's frustrated. She's angry. Right? That's the first sister, the older sister, Martha. And Jesus has to say to her, Martha, Martha, there are a lot of things that you can focus on, but your sister is focused on the main thing, the most important thing, which is me. Right? But then on the other hand, you have Mary. Mary is the one who, instead of doing, was more focused on being and is sitting at the feet of Jesus and completely ignores all the things around her because she is with her Savior. This is the same person who, in the very next chapter, John chapter 12, she she is so emotionally overwhelmed by what Jesus did by resurrecting her brother that she takes a pound of perfume and she pours it over his head. So so let let me unpack this for you just to show you how different these two sisters were. The older sister, Martha, was an individual who was focused on doing and responded primarily with her head. The younger sister, Mary, was someone who was focused on being in the moment and responded primarily with her heart. Listen, when you understand that, it makes sense why they respond the way they respond. It says that when Martha got wind that Jesus was even within the vicinity, she's a doer. She has to do something. She doesn't even let Jesus go into the village. She meets him outside of the village. She meets him out there, and essentially, when you look at it, has a theological debate with Jesus. Why? Because she is focused on doing and responds primarily with her head. Mary, on the other hand, doesn't even know Jesus is there. She's so focused on being in that moment with her brother that has passed. She doesn't even know Jesus is there. It's Martha that has to go tell her, hey, Jesus is here. And when Mary, when Mary shows up, Jesus doesn't debate her. He cries with her. So one sister is focused on doing and re- responds primarily with her head. The other one is focused on being and responds primarily with her heart. And we see both responses here in this passage. Here's the thing, guys. We have to understand 
that at the end of the day, people are going to respond differently to suffering. And that's okay. And if God understands that, we should understand that as well. Now, before I talk to you more about Jesus' response, because Jesus' response to the sisters is masterful. You see his, his wisdom. You see his pastoral heart. You see him truly being the wonderful counselor. Before we look at Jesus' response, I, there's a principle here. There's a very important pastoral principle that I want to teach you in this moment. And this is actually a principle that I didn't know about until a few months ago. But once I learned it, it completely changed my view of suffering and sufferers. Here's what I learned. Uh, a few months ago, uh, we had uh, this young man over who was a guy, his name's Chris, and I discipled him back in the day. When I was a youth pastor, he was part of my youth ministry, and I discipled him. And God, over time, worked in his life, and now he's studying to be a pastor. He's over at Moody Bible Institute. So he's now getting ready to graduate soon. And him and I were talking, and he was telling me about a class that he took at Moody called The Theology of Suffering. The Theology of Suffering. And here's what the professor in this class taught. The professor taught that by and large, suffering tends to be an objective event. Suffering tends to be an objective event. So you lose a job, right? Or you get cancer or you lose a loved one. See, suffering tends to be a subjective event, right? But here's what's interesting. Here's what the professor said. The people, the sufferers that are impacted by that objective event respond to that event with their own subjective experience. So, so, so let, me, let me make sure you, you're, you're following me here. Even though suffering tends to be objective events, the way people respond to that objective event are with subjective experiences. So you can have two sufferers going through the same exact event, but they respond completely different to that event. These sisters are a perfect example, right? In this passage, we see the sisters, they both objectively have lost their brother. It's an objective event. They have lost their brother. But they each have a different subjective experience because of their personalities. And the example that the professor in that class used, he, he, he used the example, he said, pretend that a 12-year-old girl and a 35-year-old woman both break their arm. Objectively, they experience the same event. They have broken their arm. But pretend that the 12-year-old girl is on summer break and is just going to get a cast on and get better. But the 35-year-old woman is a professional violinist. That's a whole different experience. See, they both have just gone through the same objective event. They have broken their arm. But the subjective experience is different depending on the person. Another example of this is of my brother and I. Listen, my brother and I are very different personalities. And over the past six months, we both have lost two grandparents and we had our father on life support. My brother and I have gone through the same three objective events. But yet our subjective experiences couldn't be any more different. I have more of the, well, I have a mixture of both, if I'm honest, Mary and Martha. And he has a mixture of both, Mary and Martha. But our responses were radically different. You know what, we, what would be the worst thing for me to do? To look at my brother and judge how he is suffering. 
to look at my brother and say, oh, well, he obviously he doesn't care about our grandparents as much as I do because I cried and he did it. Church, if we are not careful, if we don't understand that on the one hand, suffering is an objective experience, but that every person has a, an objective event, but that every person has a subjective experience, if we're not careful, we can easily approach people with our own temperaments, with our own demeanor, with our own preferences, and be bothered that they're not responding the way we are responding. So you have someone who's a Mary, but you approach him like a Martha. Or you have someone who's a Martha, and you approach him like a Mary. Heck, and if you're anything like me, I feel like in my time of suffering, I'm a little bit of both. There's times where I need you to come to me as Mary, and there's times where I need you to come to me as Martha. But, but if, if, if we don't understand this pastoral principle, that suffering is objective on the, on the one hand, but subjective on the other, if we don't understand this, we are not going to minister to people the way God wants us to minister to people. Instead of meeting them where they're at, we're going to try to force them to where we are. But what I love about Jesus and what I love about what he does here is that Jesus responds completely differently to these two sisters. You see his empathy. You see his grace. You see his pastoral heart. He meets each sister exactly where they are. He doesn't try to force them to where he is. He doesn't force his temperament on them, his perspective on them, his demeanor on them, but he meets each sister exactly where they are. To one sister, he gives the ministry of truth, and to the other sister, he gives the ministry of tears. With one sister, uh, he, he has a good conversation, and then with the other sister, he has a good cry. With one sister, he engages her in an argument. And with the other one, he encourages her with affirmation. With one sister, he thinks it out. And then with the other sister, he hugs it out. That's how pastoral Jesus Christ is. He meets you exactly where you are. Isn't that beautiful? That that's the Savior that we have? That meets us exactly where we are? He is a wonderful counselor. He is a lion and a lamb. And he is exactly what we need. See, in light of this concept of the, the response to suffering, what this does is it changes our view of suffering. It changes our view of sufferers. It has to. And one of the things I love about this passage is that it says in verse 5 of John 11, I didn't read it, but in verse 5, it says that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It could have easily said Jesus loves the family. But John goes out of his way through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Why? Because Jesus loved the family corporately, but he also loved each of them individually. And someone here needs to hear this from me today. Jesus Christ loves the church corporately, but he also loves you individually. And he will meet you where you are with whatever you are feeling. You can go to him with everything you feel. Your anger, your doubt, 
your bitterness, your numbness, your confusion, you can go to him because he loves the church corporately, but he loves you individually. Because Jesus is fully man, he can relate to your suffering. But because he's fully God, he can redeem your suffering. Amen? So we see the reality. We see the responses. And the last thing we see here in this passage is we see the removal. The removal of suffering. Look what it says in verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, the thinker, remember, the thinking one, the doing one, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And if you jump down to verse 53, I'm only going to read verse 53. It says, from that day on, they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, made plans to put him to death. So the third and final truth that we see here in this passage is we see the removal of suffering. We see the removal of suffering. Now, now, here's the thing. In this passage, we see Jesus perform an incredible miracle, right? One of his greatest miracles, easily one of the greatest miracles that Jesus would ever perform is performed right here in John chapter 11. But what if I told you that this wasn't the ultimate miracle that Jesus would perform? What if I told you that this miracle actually points us to the greatest miracle that Jesus would one day perform? You see, because what we see here in this passage is that Jesus is only temporarily delaying death, not permanently defeating death. See, in this passage, we see Jesus only temporarily delaying suffering, not permanently defeating suffering. If, if, if you look closely, one of the mistakes that people make with this passage is that they say that Jesus resurrected Lazarus, but nowhere in the passage is the word resurrection used because Jesus doesn't actually resurrect Lazarus. He resuscitates Lazarus. Those are two very different things. You see, because if Jesus would have resurrected Lazarus, Lazarus would have never died again. But we know that he does die again, so Jesus doesn't resurrect him. He actually just resuscitates him. And so this person who wasn't going to die today was going to eventually die one day. He takes the grave clothes off for a, a period of time, but one day Lazarus would put on the grave clothes again because Jesus doesn't resurrect Lazarus. 
he resuscitates him. What we see here in this passage is that Jesus, he plunders the grave temporarily, but not eternally. Because one day, Lazarus would die again. And since Jesus only resuscitates him and doesn't resurrect him, Jesus is delaying death and suffering, but he is not yet defeating death and suffering. So, so the question that we have to wrestle with is this. How is Jesus going to ultimately defeat death and suffering? How is Jesus ultimately going to take the sting of death away? Well, according to the Gospels, the way that Jesus would one day take away the sting was by stepping in our place. He would remove the sting of death by taking the sting of death in our place. That's how Jesus would one day do it. You see, what you see here is that this actually wasn't the final step in the removing of death and suffering. It was the first step. It was like a domino effect. He, by doing this, he pushed the domino that then would then lead to the ultimate removal of suffering. How do we know? Because in verse 53, which is the verse I read, it says that from this moment on, it was this moment that made the Pharisees decide this brother has to die. It was this very moment. In other words, this whole thing was part of Jesus' plan. He knew that in temporarily delaying death and suffering, he would cause a series of events that would result in him permanently removing sin, suffering, and death. It was always a part of his plan. Jesus knew that in stopping Lazarus's funeral procession, he was starting his own funeral procession. Jesus knew that in bringing Lazarus back from the death, he was now stepping into death himself. He understood the ramifications of it, but he did it because he didn't want to just deal with the symptoms. He wanted to deal with the sickness. He wanted to deal with the source. You know, one of the things that it says here in the passage is that as Jesus is crying for Lazarus, it says that the people look at Jesus and say, look how much he loved them. Oh, how he loved them. I would argue that in the gospel, we have even greater evidence of how he loved us. Because at the cross, Jesus didn't cry for us. He died for us. He died for you and for me. You see, in this story, we see Jesus relating to grief and suffering. But in the greater story, the gospel story, Jesus isn't going just to relate to grief and suffering. He's going to redeem and ultimately remove our grief and our suffering. That's what Scripture teaches. What began in a garden would one day end in a garden. In Genesis 3, suffering entered the world in a garden because the first Adam disobeyed God. But then what we see in the gospel is that in another garden, what started in one garden ends in another. Because the last Adam started bringing sin and death to an end. Not by disobeying God in a garden, but by obeying God in a garden. 
Church, the reason why we know that Jesus Christ will be faithful in the smaller storms and the smaller furnaces is because he was faithful in the biggest storm and the biggest furnace. The same God who is with us in our suffering is the same God who is for us in our salvation. That's what we see. That's what this passage teaches us. And what I love about what Jesus says to Martha, he doesn't say, hey, I can lead you to the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, hey, come here, close. I have the secret to resurrection and life. He says, no, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the resurrection in the life. What does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that in the gospel, we don't just have partial consolation, but one day we will have full restoration. One day God will return everything that we've lost. One day we will be reunited with everyone who we've lost. Not partial consolation, but in the gospel, we will have full restoration. Full and total restoration. So listen, I'm not sure to what degree you are suffering this morning. I I don't know uh, to what degree or what level you are experiencing suffering this morning or this season. But, But here is what I do know. That in light of the gospel, we can sit here today And and we grieve the loss of these families, these losses of these families that I just listed. We we grieve the loss of Trisha, our dear friend and sister and co-laborer in the gospel. We, We grieve, but we do not grieve like those who do not have hope. Because in the gospel, In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have a Savior who can relate to our suffering. We have a Savior who can redeem our suffering. And we have a Savior who will one day completely remove our suffering. Amen? Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. You know, as you're sitting here today, maybe you knew what was going on this week in the life of our church. Maybe you had no idea. Maybe you're here in this room. Maybe you're over at East Memphis. Maybe you're watching from church at home. But as I sit here today and I share with you this word from God, I honestly cannot think of a better way to honor the memory of Trisha, of our sister, of our co-worker, of our co-laborer. I can't think of a better way to honor the legacy of Trisha than to invite people to Jesus today. Trisha gave her life doing that, sharing the gospel with as many people as she could. And so in light of that, to honor the memory of the gospel and the memory of our sister Trisha, today I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus today. Today is the day. 
for those who are far from Jesus because either you've never believed in him before or because you walked away from him a long time ago. Today is the day that you place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Because what we see in Scripture, what we learn in light of the gospel is that in Jesus, we don't just have a priest who can relate to our suffering. We don't just have a Savior who can redeem our suffering, but we have a King who will one day remove our suffering. And so if you're sitting here today, I don't know what degree of suffering you are experiencing, but I can tell you that Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. He and he alone is sufficient, church, to carry your suffering and your pain and your grief. And guess what? He is also sufficient to carry your sin. And so if you're sitting here today within the sound of my voice, whether you're here in this room or watching online or over at East Memphis, there is a reason why God has you hear this message today. There's a reason why you are listening to these words today. And my prayer right now is that today would be the day that you place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. The Bible says that they who confess with their mouth and believe with their heart that Jesus is Lord shall be saved. So with every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to give you an opportunity right now to receive Jesus. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, Will, I want to place my faith in this Savior who didn't just come to take away my suffering and my pain, but my sin and my brokenness. If that's you, I'm going to count to three. And at three, I want you to raise your hand wherever you are, whether that's at East Memphis or at home or here in the room. At the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. No one will see you so I can pray for you and the decision you've made. One, Jesus loves you. Two, three. If this is you, go ahead and raise your hand now. Father, I want to pray right now for the people who have responded to your gospel. I want to thank you for the fact that there are people right now, Lord, who have been ushered into your kingdom and that in you they have hope. In you they have salvation. Whether they are here in the room, Lord, or at East Memphis or in church at home, God, we thank you that in the gospel we have a Savior that relates, redeems, and will one day remove our suffering. God, I thank you that as we pray for the healing of those who are still with us. Lord, we know that because of the gospel, we grieve different. We have an eternal hope that will one day allow us to see you and Trisha and all the people who we've lost in this season. Jesus, when we pray for healing, so often we think that that healing can only happen here on earth. But Lord, we thank you that in light of the gospel, Trisha has been healed. And we thank you that she's more alive right now than she's ever been. God, we miss her, but we know that we will see her again because of your gospel truth. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the people who responded by faith this morning to your gospel message. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.